Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, Ben here. This is A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers, the podcast. But you already knew that, hopefully. If you're expecting a different podcast, you have stumbled upon the wrong one. Anyway, uh, my guest this week is Joanne Coates, and I will introduce Joe properly in a minute as is customary. But give me a second or two to uh, run a couple of sponsors by you because they are, as I'm always saying, the ones who are keeping the show on the road. And uh, let me say, as I often do, that if you want to support the ongoing production of this podcast and access special exclusive content to boot, then you can sign up as a member. You can give me five quid a month, two cups of coffee per month will get you exclusive member only content. And you go to pod.fan where you can do that. And I would be most appreciative and grateful if you would. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, you can also do that. That'd be good. And if you want a Squarespace website and you can't be asked to learn how to do it yourself, then let me know and I will do one for you. This episode of the Small Voice Podcast is supported by Flow Photographic, a leading internationally renowned photographics print studio in central London, where the emphasis is on personal service and the creation of stunning prints, and where clients are invited to take their time, drink coffee and discuss their work with Flow founder and hugely experienced master printer Alex Schneiderman. The studio, which also carries out exhibition framing and installation, is located in central London, 20 minutes from Soho and a minute's walk from Kensal Green Tube Station. Recent clients include leading photographers such as Joel Mayovitz, Paddy Summerfield, Jem Southern, Mimi Plum, Chris Anderson, Matthew Finn, Alice Tomlinson and Sonal Gupta, as well as Magnum Photo, Stanley Barker Publishing, the Howe Greenberg Gallery, Huxley Parlour and other museums and art institutions all over the world. The lab is also home to Flow Photographic Gallery, a non-profit space that supports and showcases British documentary photography. So go to the website flowphotographic.com, call Flow today and make an appointment to discuss your work with Alex. And of course, this episode of The Small Voice is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, the monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts that brings essential limited edition and hard to find photo books to your doorstep. I'm very excited about this month. The book of the month is Departure Lounge by Jason Eskenazi. Now, that is the final chapter in the Black Garden trilogy. And uh, that's the only one I haven't got. And I was actually going to buy that. I I saw that uh, at Chico in the spring. And I was thinking, hmm, I really should buy that because I've got the other two. I've got Wonderland and I've got Black Garden. And I didn't buy it because I couldn't be asked basically to have to schlep anything additional home from the United States. So... I'm glad I didn't because it's going to be coming through the mail very soon. The book of the month uh, is Departure Lounge by Jason Eskenazi. And you can find out more about the Charcoal Book Club on their website, charcoalbookclub.com. Each month, if you sign up, you receive a new museum quality first edition monograph to add to your shelves, handpicked by Charcoal's team of expert curators. And they offer free shipping to UK, Canada and the US. So go to charcoalbookclub.com, find out more about signing up to the best monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts that there is. So Joanne Coates is an English working class documentary photographer based in North Yorkshire, interested in rurality, hidden histories and class. She was born in the rural north of England, educated first in working class alternative communities, and then at the John Cass School of Fine Art and the London College of Communication, from where she has a BA Honours in Photography. Her practice is as much about process, participation and working with communities as the still image. Joanne's work has been exhibited both in the UK and internationally. Joanne is director of the arts organisation LensThink, a social enterprise based in Yorkshire and the North East, dedicated to making opportunities and gaining access for marginalised groups and developing photography in the north of England. Its aim is to fight for class equality through participation and radical community arts, and the organisation works with schools and provides mentorship to three artists per year. In 2021, Joanne was a joint awardee of the Jerwood PhotoWorks Prize. The resulting work, The Lie of the Land, explores the social history of the land and narrates a story of gender and class in relation to the countryside of the northeast of England, and will be exhibited at the Jerwood Space in London from the 23rd of September to the 10th of December 2022. Her project, Daughters of the Soil, about the role of women 
Women in Agriculture in Northumberland and the Scottish Borders was published as a book in a small limited edition print run and is now more or less sold out. The work will be exhibited at the Vane Gallery in Gateshead from the 11th of August to the 3rd of September this year. So that's from basically next week onwards. And there will be a few remaining copies of the book available. So that's your last chance to get a copy of that if you happen to be in the area. The preview is Wednesday the 10th of August from 5 to 8. And small voice listeners are very much welcome to attend that. So if you're in the Newcastle area, go along to that opening at the Vane Gallery. It was great to speak to Joe. I will just kind of let the talk um, speak for itself and let you enjoy this chat I had with Joe Coates. Well, it's actually working, to my own astonishment. <laughs> God, that was all so weird. It seems to be okay, Joe. Fingers crossed. Thank you for being so incredibly patient, and thank you for joining me. I think you listen to A Small Voice, don't you? Yeah. Have you been listening for very long? I think a few years, maybe. I always like listen when I'm out on a walk and stuff. That's good to know. Which photographers do you particularly like? Any people who have been on that you that spring to mind? Well, it was on like a joint one, Brian Shutmat. Oh, yeah, Brian, yeah. Well, you'll be very glad to hear that he's coming up in a few weeks. Um, I have one that I did with Brian on his own quite recently. Oh, cool. So, yeah, that'll be coming soon. Tell me about what you are currently up to then. Which kind of project is mainly preoccupying you at the moment so i'm working on a project called the live the land um which was the jayward photo works project so i'm kind of like really deep in that in the moment so i'm like editing and doing the final stages of it um so that'll be exhibited in september so i'm kind of like in that end mm. stage of it Tell tell us about the Jerwood Prize. What is that prize? And then because that's that's what you won, which uh, I guess has provided what the funding for this project. Yeah, so Heather and I joint won the prize. Um, it's a prize that is awarded um, to photographers and artists. Um, I think they have to be based in the UK. I'm not hundred percent on that mm. one, um, but it's a prize for I would say emerging photographers or artists who want to change their practice of photography or work in some way um so the kind of the reason I applied is it was like about this change in your work and having that time and space to make those changes and experiment and play um so I kind of wasn't going to apply and then applied last minute just something and then yeah like it happened and did you have to submit a proposal for the lie of the land as a project yeah so it could be quite loose so you could say like I have this idea um I submitted the proposal and then you get shortlisted and then you have an interview Mm, right right so in what way have has your practice sort of changed or evolved then what what is the change that you're kind of referring to so I think there's there's been lots of challenges. So like I really wanted to, I think I have almost two separate practices. So one that's like socially engaged, working with communities in a way that is about them making work. And then there's me as a photographer and as an artist. And then I wanted to kind of try and make that meet somewhere or at least question how that works and how you can make that meet or play and Mm. things Um, and I also wanted to make work where I was like this is about kind of class and reality and that's what I'm making the work about and it's not really someone else commissioned me to make the work and I've got time to do it and kind of use different things like film and to play with different ways of working and what Mm. this meant was that I was able to do that but also like I wanted to use large format and this meant I could buy some large format kit but it also meant that I could like pay to go to stills in Edinburgh and develop things or to have a printing day or so it gives you that flexibility to do that. So just introduce us to the project then tell tell us about the lie of the land and what it is. So it is a project that kind of looks at 
I would say there's kind of three elements to it, which is our autobiographical personal element um a kind of historical narratives and then a more modern so it is it's about class and what class is for women who live in rural areas um, and that includes myself as well mm-hmm. so in a way is it a kind of natural development of of daughters of the land because that was another project that, that you've i guess came before and that's specifically about women working in agriculture I suppose definitely so I think with the Daughters of the Soil project it was sorry Daughters of the Soil no, you're right, don't worry. Um, the Daughters of the Soil project um, was a residency but it was something that I really wanted to look at and what I kind of see that as is like that was a seed that enabled me again to have like space to look at a project but I kept looking at class even when I was looking at that project and now, a project about agriculture, it doesn't necessarily cover class. But then when you find yourself kind of coming back to something um, that wasn't necessarily all the people involved in that wouldn't have been kind of interested in class or kind of it wasn't all about class starts of the soil. But because I kept coming back to it, I kept doing a lot of research and thinking, I really want to do this project. So I thought like this was a good time to put a proposal together and to kind of go back on all our research of the project I want to do. And I thought, if I get it, then great, I can do it. If I don't get it, great, I can still do it. It might take me longer. But it really, I think putting that proposal together made me think, like, I want to do this and I can't not do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you find your subjects for that Daughters of the Soil project? So for the Daughters of the Soil one, um, I made posters. So I made these little kind of posters and put them in auction marts and put them like round town so that was one way um another way was like asking people around so the people where I'm from is a really agricultural farming area so I would say do you know anyone who lives in Northumberland or the Scottish borders and some connections came that way and then another way was online so like posting saying I'm doing this project is anyone interested um, and then people came forward and from those people, the women would always recommend someone else. They'd always be like, have you talked to this person? They're amazing. They, they do this, they farm this, or they've done this differently. Um, and it kind of snowballed from there as in they refer you to different people. Mm, right, right. And like, did you see it as very much a collaborative project then? Yeah, definitely with that. And it with that it was harder so there was lots of things that I wanted to do to start with but when the residency started was March 2020 which was obviously oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, not the best time for a project to start so I had to like pause it um for a little bit and I didn't move up but then when it was safe to do so it would make work but it just meant working outside um and then I would make quizzes for people and kind of do things that like was about talking and listening and take walks together, walks around the farm. But some of the things that I wanted to do, like getting everyone to meet up together, just wouldn't have been a Mm. possible or like a safe thing to do. So I had to kind of adjust it slightly. Um, But I kind of see that as almost like a research process, but a really important part of it is like uh, like recording audio with people and listening to them, taking walks with them, is kind of a part of the research to work out how I'm going to photograph them. Um, But it's also kind of talking about what I'm doing and why and seeing if they still want to be photographed. And with the lie of the land, how has that kind of developed? Is it still a a fundamentally a portrait project or what are you actually photographing for that one? So it's portraits and landscapes. And so the landscapes is kind of the, the feeling that I kind of get um so I think like class in the countryside it has this kind of like unease because it is quite hidden um and when you see the countryside I think it's quite often you know it can be quite alluring it's quite beautiful and you kind of think oh it'd be perfect to live here or it's like idyllic and I think like David Cameron in part is kind of more responsible for that pastoral version of like country living where you think of like adverts and uh, Yorkshire tea and everything being perfect and like lovely and and obviously like it's I think a bit more layered than that Mm. um and I really wanted to like examine that and so I'm looking at places in the land that maybe do show signs of class um, and are maybe like scarred or ravaged 
in the same way that working class people can be um from like exploitation so Mm -hmm. kind of looking at all those different things so let's talk about class then because this seems very kind of fundamental to your work and to to who you are and i'm just i'm really interested and curious about sort of why that is such an important aspect of your own identity so i think it's it's quite strange so i think you only really realize your working class or your class when maybe you like move out of your area or gain that kind of knowledge and understanding so for me that was very much maybe like going to university um was when I realized but I think in a way it's good because you get this knowledge you go to university and you get this knowledge about class but then that also gives you that fuel to resent it because you've got that knowledge and then it puts you in this kind of weird space because you've been given the opportunity to go but you still don't have the same opportunities as your peers and so you're in a strange kind of place and I think there's a writer called Nathalie Oller and she writes really really well about this and that like I guess how would you say like apathy or the kind of resentment of you know like social mobility that that kind of myth that was kind of I think especially I think it can apply to everyone but especially if you were born in like the 90s or maybe late 80s there was this kind of like you can do anything you can be anyone and I don't necessarily think that's true Mm. Do you you think that there's less social mobility than people like to think? Yeah, and and again from Nathalie's book, there's um, a quote in it. See if I can get it right. Um, there's le- like there's no more opportunities for people to kind of move up the scale than they were in the seventies, or to get jobs or access to jobs than they were in the nineteen seventies. But there's obviously a lot more people. Um, so I found that quite interesting. Mm. So like your experience, because you came down to London for college, right? So your experience of of doing that was your sort of the first time that you'd ever really been aware of your own working class nurse, as it were. Is that what you're basically saying? I think properly. I mean, there was there was times when you were aware slightly, Mm -hmm. but not I maybe didn't have the knowledge to address what that is or to talk about what that was um and I think yeah like that that was definitely when I kind of started realizing Mm. so what what was your sort of upbringing like then where where did you grow up in 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 a rural setting yeah in a rural setting in North Yorkshire Mm. and so um, like what why what do your parents do then what what was your sort of background and and you know your sort of experience of of school and that kind of thing my experience of school was like a normal kind of small comprehensive school yeah but all your peers you kind of would have considered to have been sort of also you know the same class as you as it were or not necessarily not necessarily I don't I think when you grow up in a rural area there are there could be quite a mix of people, especially when you're at primary school. I think that you might have a mix because some people might go on to go to private school, um, but they would still go to the same primary school as you up until they were like... Oh, right, okay. Yeah, so um, same mixture as anywhere else in a way then. I'm just curious about where you get this very kind of strong kind of working class um, kind of identity from. I'm wondering how that developed for you because not, you know, it's something that most people don't really bother to even mention. But with you, it's one of the first things that you do mention. So I'm just I'm just really interested in why that why that is for you. You know, I think that I never saw photographers that were working class or I didn't, I think coming from that background, nobody tells you that you can go to university or no one ever said, like I was, did pretty well at school, but no one ever mentioned uni because you weren't from that that kind of family where someone would say you can right. go to uni um, and like had quite a turbulent family life, had, have a really, really supportive mum, which is really helpful. And I think things like that, you maybe should address because I think without that maybe I wouldn't be where I was today and I don't mean financially supportive I mean she was emotionally supportive which is really probably how you end up getting somewhere um Mm. having someone 
push and believe in you but there was a time when I was not in touch with my family when I was really young and so when I was 16 17 and going through like a really hard time um but even then I don't even when like you know I didn't have a horror I didn't have things like that I wouldn't necessarily say like I wouldn't have said as a 17 year old I am working class and that's maybe why these things are harder for me like I wouldn't have had the words but that was what it was um and I think when I started studying one of the first artists luckily was Joe Spence that I was shown mm. and I was like oh this she's amazing like and really understanding her work and seeing the different work that she made but I'd never seen anything like that so that was in my foundation yeah and I was really like what is this and mm. understanding and starting to kind of see bits of your identity um and how important that was for me um and I think yeah like sometimes I'm not sure like I want to I want to be able to say like where that like fire came from where I'm like but I think it's because there was nobody to say it and like there was no representation of that and there was lots of photographers that I loved but then whenever I looked at their backgrounds like I wouldn't understand like so how do you get to university so how do you get here um so how do you like the the really basic questions and it would kind of come down to a class thing and like Mm. I mean I think class is really complex because I feel sometimes we use it just as an identity marker but I don't think it is just that I think it's about like systemic oppression and hardships and like the effect that that causes on people and on communities and I kind of really want to address that and look at that and I feel there was this over lockdown there was this video I can't remember which video it was I feel like it might have been Yale did this like for their photographing they did these questions and I was watching this video with Nan Golden and Gregory Crudes and I, I think it was in that one and Nan Golden talks about how it feels like now we're more liberal than ever and more open-minded, but we're actually more conservative and kind of conservative laws are coming back. So it's like there was this period of more freedom or like an illusion of it. And now it's kind of mm. getting, and, and I feel like that's really is, especially if you look at the news in the past kind of like three weeks, I feel like yeah, that I is mean, really happening. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, we only have to look at the Roe versus Wade uh, result in in the states. There is a profound conservatism, and I think it's all part of the the kind of you know extreme dichotomy that's you know kind of emerged in terms of politics and uh, you know culture wars and all that kind of thing. It's a complicated picture, but yeah, it's not very uh, encouraging one. How did you make the break then? So you did, have, I mean, like you did come come and, was it photography that you did a degree in? So it was photography. I wasn't, I didn't go to uni until I was 21. Right. Um, so I was a bit older, but that's because I'd saved up to go to uni. So um, lived with some friends and saved up. Um, and we just like lived in like the worst place and um, <laughs> saved up as much as I could to get to uni. And mm. um, I had my heart set on uh, LCC, which is the London College of Communication, um, and really wanted to kind of go there. But I actually do think having these jobs that were like call centres or working in a clothes shop or be like whatever, like doing whatever you can actually do help in a certain way because they kind of drive you towards that and you do kind of mm. well you have to be determined now I mean I, I'm sort of thinking about you know like anyone of my generation is slightly shocked to, to hear you say that but because of course we used to have a free ride and you could um, go and do a degree and get a grant from the government and it didn't you didn't have to save anything you know and so I'm thinking well of course you know you're of that generation where that's not the case anymore and um yeah it's more more like the american model where it's uh, you know education is expensive so again this this does play into the class uh issue in a big way because before there was a sort of egalitarian kind of uh you know nature to the whole thing where you know it didn't matter if you were if you came from a you know from a, a sort of a, a background of um 
you know financial hardship or anything you were at least able to go and do a degree and that was that was a brilliant thing um but yeah i guess you at least it means you are serious about it i suppose if you've got to find the money and there was this, this statistic that comes from the girls network that really shocked me that was like it's six like and again like i'll double check these but it's a six percent of girls from the poorest homes only six percent make it to university and i was like six mm. percent is i would never think that mm. yeah it's terrible that's that's pretty shocking um i mean it's not particularly surprising but it's yeah it's a pretty shocking statistic but so like when did you get interested in photography that like, was that a s- school years we did so we didn't have a photography we had like an arts course that was quite mm. like a GCSE that you did like painting or pottery or but it was no uh photography or cameras or access or anything like that um I think it came from uh we used to stay with my grandparents they used to look after us quite a lot on like weekends um and my granddad was always interested in photography but what he used to he never had like equipment but he used to get me a disposable camera um and that would be like my thing to play with over the weekend mm-hmm. um and it would be like make this kind of last and like and they weren't good pictures just to say <laughs> it was like but I think that it was that interest and I and also I was quite quiet um and often found it quite hard to not to speak but to say what I like wanted to as a child and I think photography even with those like disposable cameras was something where that really helped me to do that mm. um and then I mean and just to like the people listening if people are students I didn't actually have an, an SLR until after I graduated but the great thing about if you can get to university is you can loan equipment and you can, and I think that is some, I think sometimes we can get in our heads about not having things, but I think sometimes it's like, what can you do with what you have? And like, I know that's, that can be a bit restricting, but if you don't do anything, that's more restricting. Yeah, exactly. So once you got sort of down to, to London, did you kind of experience the kind of class inequality that you're sort of, you know, interested in, in, in your work? I mean, what was it? How does that manifest itself? I think it was, it was really good having a large kind of peer network and meeting lots of different people. Um, but yeah, I found like, I really realized my background was pretty different to everyone else's. And I think at first I almost was embarrassed of it. Like, which I'm probably, like, you know, like, ashamed to say now. But at first I was like, oh, maybe I should, like, lose my accent. I don't want to talk like this. As you can tell, I didn't really manage to do that. But, mm. <laughs> like, I like I was like, oh, because, you know, people would ingest, like, make fun of your accent. But when it's every day or when people kind of make fun of you for not knowing what a food is or these are all, like, trivial things that, like, don't really matter. But I think after a while it takes its toll on you. But mm. I think you know the main thing is like that you do have to work a lot harder and you you can't access certain things and I think it starts to really kind of get to you because you'd never seen that before but little things I always think one of the most maybe like harmful things about class is the confidence thing Mm. um and like having imposter syndrome and it, the way it kind of makes you feel that you're not really like worthy of things and I think sometimes for me getting to uni like everyone like that was the thing that was really amazing whereas for other people like that was just some, the the first that wasn't even a step that was like before you even get the step whereas I was like oh my god I'm at university and mm-hmm. like it was like not even a thing um and kind of understanding that and also feeling a bit like how a lot of people just took it for granted that they're at university was you were like, do you not realize how much of an opportunity this is? And you don't have to be here. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of, yeah, the kind of middle-class birthright, you know, that of course I'm here, but you had more of an appreciation of it, I suppose, which perhaps is in some ways an advantage because you, you're really going to make the most of it. But what did your mum encourage you? Like you said, you didn't go until you were 21, but were you encouraged or did you have to sort of 
prove that you really want, were serious about doing it? So I kind of was, yeah, again, pretty independent. Like I applied and like had a few years where I didn't speak to my mom and didn't. Um, and so like, it was very much like my decision and I'm going, which is very much how I am. If I'm going to do something like I won't necessarily like consult, like I will think about it myself and make that decision and be like quite independent in mm. that way. But I think when I talked to her about it, like being 20, she was like, well, you've always, no matter what you've been through, you've always been interested in photography. So whether that was like looking in a magazine, like I would always look at images and whether that was like looking at supplements from newspapers or um, like one of my boyfriends, his dad lent me, like it was like not even a really good camera, but he used to let me use his camera and I was like, obsessed with it. And she said, mm. no matter what, you've always had this one thing. So in a way she wanted me to go and she kind of was supportive of me going. Because you mentioned you it was you had quite a difficult time around 16, 17. Did you have a falling out with your mum? It sounds like if you didn't speak to her for a while, that might have happened. So it wasn't necessarily a falling out. It was more turbulent at home. Mm. Um, and like I uh, left. Um, sorry, I don't know how much I should go into it well no exactly don't just uh, you don't have to answer anything you don't not comfortable talking about so just you know forget about it if you want um but yeah it was just a a kind of difficult time where like lots of personal things happened mm. at once um and yeah that's it no yeah and it's a really t it's a tough time that age anyway right i mean so yeah, any anything in addition to the normal kind of teenage, you know, trials and tribulations is gonna presumably gonna hit you pretty hard at that point. I mean, yeah, and I, I yeah, I, I remember, yeah, that fucking sucked that time of of life for me as well. So I know I know what you mean, um, regardless of the specifics of it all. But also, let's talk about northern your northernness as well because you know northern culture is also something that you i think you're very kind of interested in um, and you're talking about your you know people i don't know making reference to your accent or whatever you can't tell class from that accent but it's a northern accent and i'm just thinking about you know the extent to which maybe that's also a very important part of your identity and about you know the things that you want to explore in your work definitely and i think I really agree with you when you say you can't tell class from an accent because I don't think that it is necessarily, not anymore, um, like a representative of what class you are. Um, but I do think it's something that people tie to their identity. Um, and I think that northernness, it is kind of hard to sum up. And then you have like hyper localities and different regions. Um, but I do think there's different ways of being um and when you look at like the history of like power relations in the north um and where the industrial revolution began like I think there's all these things that feed into it um and I don't know how they all come together but I'm really interested in how they do and how these things interweave throughout time um, and the effects that they have on people mm, mm. and uh, are these are some of the themes that you're going to be looking at in the lie of the land are they yeah, they are. So really like looking at how those kind of power structures of the land and maybe how it was used kind of come together um, and the narratives they tell. Mm. I like that title. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen a documentary called The Lie of the Land, but um, there's a there's a documentary by Molly Deneen by that title, which is fascinating. And it is about uh, about the, the English countryside in some ways. You should uh, if you haven't seen it, I would. I would definitely recommend it. It's very interesting, but it's probably, and it's not uh, directly related to what you're um, exploring. Um, but you know, yes, this, this thing, I mean, I was I, I, to kind of try and tie in the whole um, class thing with the Northern thing. I was thinking about whether the, that sort of class inequality is, is just more pronounced in, in the South of, of this country and whether, you know, in the North, it's much less of a thing. What's your experience? I think it's hard because in a place like London, there is a lot of class inequality in different neighbourhoods. And But I think it's it's a different situation. I'm not saying for a minute like there's not 
class inequality in the south versus the north because I think that that's there's class inequality all over the UK Mm. um and different places have different issues but it, it is all an issue um I think maybe from working with young people in different areas I think the north is you have a different way of being and again I don't know whether this is from like being in a rural area because that's where I grew up but you're taught you have to be quite like humble and so if you went into a room and you were really confident it's like that tall poppy thing you would be told not to do that and you would (laughs) someone would like take the piss out of you to bring you back down even in a jokey way but then you go to London and you're told that you have to act the way that you've been told is not how you act. Oh, wow. That must be really confusing. And I think, yeah, you're like, um, so what do I do in this yeah. situation? How, how did you sort of work your way through that little dilemma then? I mean, there's something to be said for both of those attitudes, but um, they can't, they, they're mutually exclusive in a way. So, you know, you've got to go one way or the other. I mean, I think humility is hugely important, but then so is confidence. So, you know, you've got to try and steer that uh, that line down the middle. And I think it, it is trying to find your own way. And I think it took me a while, but it's like being true to yourself. And when I was like, it was first year, I think, I was lucky that I got a mentor in Steve McLeod who works at Metro um, and he was just like, it doesn't matter if you're not the loudest person in the room, just be, it's, it's important for you to be who you are. And that really like, it is important to be who you are. And so I would say that I'm not super confident, but I am quietly confident and I am very much like true to who I am and quite stubborn. Mm. And that's my way of doing it. But I think that that might not work for everyone. So you have to apply what is your personality and all these different things. So like, I'm never going to be that person at a private view that walks up to someone and is like, hi, this is me. This is what my work's about. Yeah. I would, I would vomit in my mouth. I just wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> like, but as well, it would come across like that, but someone else that might be who they are. And there's not actually nothing wrong with that, but that might be very natural for them. So then it wouldn't be a forced interaction. But I think that it's about being true to who you are and finding your own way so that might be saying let's have a coffee instead of like oh would you like to talk about this or like having a more natural way of meeting someone or quietly and determinedly getting on with your work Mm. in the way that you can Mm. yeah absolutely yeah and that you know it's the same for kind of discovering your own photographic kind of process you know we all have to find our own way of doing things and that is about really inherently you know, who you are as a person, I suppose. So you're taking that into your process as well. I mean, you're really interested in participation and, and working with communities as well. well again, that, I, does that really kind of come as a natural result of having uh, grown up in a, in a fairly kind of small rural community? I have thought about this quite a lot and I think like it must come from that. Like I feel because, like... Because, you know, if you grow up in a big city, there is there is really very little sense of community, I suppose. And yeah, you've had the opposite experience. I think you learn as well how much people share and tell stories at these, like whether is that a choir, is that a community band, is that what whatever, is that a, like something that they organise together and there's like a certain amount of theatricality and all these things. But you learn that like these things come together or there's this kind of like shared sense of responsibility for people within the community. Um, And I have thought, does that come from, does that come from that? Um, I can't tell you for sure. Like if it does, I think it does. Um, But I can't say a hundred percent, but I am interested in where that idea came from because we didn't really talk about socially. We didn't, we didn't have like a socially engaged uh, part of learning when we were at university um, so I graduated in 2015. So I think it, I just missed when that would have been kind of taught. But I was always really interested in it. And like, I think naturally, when I've done projects, I've always had this thing of like listening um, and coming up with something before you take photos. There is like a game that's really informal or that is like 
talking in somewhere, listening, recording audio, like making like these quizzes that people can fill out. And like that helps me learn from them, taking walks with people. And that's built up to different, obviously in different projects that has different kind of uh, percentages. Mm-mm. It feels like in a way you're just sort of taking that whole thing of using photography as a way to connect really with people which I think is something that a lot of us have in common but you're just taking it one slight step further really it's it seems very kind of central to who you are that you have to really engage with your subjects is that something also that you're kind of bringing to this new project definitely and I really wanted to bring it to the live land because I think that like with other projects and obviously you have commissions and things where you're sent and you have an hour to do a portrait, like less time even to do a portrait with someone. I'm not saying it's always that you can do all these things because you can't. And that's, it is how it is with kind of commissions and things. But what I want to be able to do is do this kind of where you think about. And I think sometimes there is a tension because sometimes when you're working with people like that, you do have like, as a photographer, you know what will make a really good image, but how someone wants to be photographed and mm. what you've talked about is not necessarily that. And it's working out how to meet in the middle and how to do something that is like is collaborative in that way. Um, and I think you have to also remember it might be quite like when you're talking about all these things with people, that's new when they haven't studied photography or the visual arts for three, four years and you have to bring your knowledge. And I think it's okay to bring your knowledge to that as well. Yeah, I guess you sort of, Daughters of the Soil was a good kind of, um, almost a kind of dress rehearsal in a way for, or, or at least a kind of uh, a kind of precursor to, to what you're doing at the moment. Because I don't know if there was a sense of, of community among those women who are all, you know, working in a, in a very sort of male-dominated uh, profession, essentially, you know, far, farming. And obviously there were people in all over the place, but what, what was that kind of, what was the experience of having kind of spoken to those women like, and what kind of, did they have that sense of, you know, being part of a, a, a kind of special little group really in a way? I think there's definitely, when, when I was thinking about, I was thinking about this in terms of, you know, people kind of say town or country and they kind of separate them. But I always think, what is that? That kind of divides communities whatever they are and I think like shared interest is one that brings people together so obviously this group of women have a really common shared interest which is farming no matter like they have different opinions on farming but they are kind of part of a group and a group that has something in common with how they work so instantly they are kind of connected in that way um and like when you bring different conversations or like even some of them won't have met each other but like I would say you would find this person really interesting or it'd be really nice if you met this person um but yeah they already had that shared Mm. ground um whereas I think in the lie of the land because they're quite different so some of them are kind of farming so none of them are farmers who own land they might be farm workers milkers um hairdressers kind of makers um people who are involved in the labor movement people whose like um partners were minors or whose dads was a minor um so you have like a mix of their views and not necessarily all shared because they're from quite different groups even though they're from the same area so it is quite interesting in that way because I feel like with the daughters of the soul they do have this this connecting factor that really roots people. Um, So even if they'll have different opinions, which they will do, they have this thing that really connects them. Um, Whereas in the lie of the land, the thing that connects them is class, but we think of class in so many different ways. And it it was also really important that it wasn't me saying you're a working class woman. I wanted people who identified as low income or identified as working class to kind of, be involved and for me not to really tell them what their class was I think that was quite important yeah the title is is kind of quite a provocative one quite evocative as well what does the title mean to you I mean what is the lie to which you're referring if there is one so there is a very kind of obvious one of that idyllic beautiful rural place 
And especially in the areas I'm, you don't have to go far to see this kind of like places, um, you know, hushes from mining where they've uh, kind of brought the water down the landscape. And this landscape's ravaged and it's like there's lots of flooding that happens because of those things that happened 100 years ago. And so it, it doesn't take you long to find that it isn't what we're told necessarily. Mm. It's not that picture perfect place. But also that, you know, like in the countryside, there are council houses. And someone didn't believe me when I said this. I was like, no, there are council houses in the countryside. Mm. But when you see a village and they are built this way, you'll see the beautiful houses and then there'll be a cul-de-sac somewhere that's hidden behind those ones. Mm. And lots of people live in in those. And like some people might own those homes as well. Um, And it's, it's quite interesting, like how these, I don't know how this vision of the countryside is something different Mm. maybe to what's lived Uh, are you partly sort of interested in trying to dispel some of these myths then that surround rurality i think is that a word even but anyway we'll say it is yeah the rural life that sounds like something you're interested in it is yeah i mean I, i would like people to ask questions i think i'd really like this work for to bring questions up in people and for them to kind of question it a bit or like think a bit differently and like to kind of be a provocateur, I can't even say it properly, but <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of words I can't say. Provocative, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, to be like that kind of thing that really makes someone think, what is that? And like, that's not my version. And like, why is that? And to kind of look beyond that. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, do you think of yourself as, a political photographer? I think everyone's a political photographer. Mm. Um, with, I don't think you know, your work necessarily has to be super political, but for me, like, the personal and the political are really, like, they, like, hold hands. They're, like, very much a part of each other. So even if you're making work and you don't talk about politics at all, how you choose to photograph people or how you choose to make images usually will reflect on your politics even if that's slightly different from what they you might say they are Mm -mm. yeah tell me about lens think then because this is something that you're uh well that i think you actually were the founder of it and um it's very much part of all these things that we've been talking about so i started it in I think 2016, 2017. So when I came back after uni, I felt like a bit isolated and um, was also kind of thinking about class and how hard it was for me to get to university and to get on that step. And I kind of wanted to like demystify that a bit for other people and was kind of thinking, how do you do that? And also in London, there's lots of like events that you could go to something photography related every week you could find something, you could find an arts event, something that was interesting where people could talk, where you could meet people who were really different, who you could have these really interesting debates with. And I think that that was missing for me. So that's what I really wanted to at first. So I started out doing socials, which there's there's lots of kind of photography socials. And then I was like, kind of a bit further down the line was like is this really I really enjoyed the socials and we were doing like exhibitions and call outs but the main reason for me starting it is because I wanted working class photographers people to kind of come and and have a place where they could kind of network and feel supported Um, and when I first started it I don't think that I was like how would you say like advanced or I had enough knowledge to like mentor and share people in that way like I could maybe like really basically do it but I think like as I've grown and stuff I offer like mentorships so there's free mentorships a year that and they're mainly for people doesn't matter what age they are but who either haven't gone to university and want to look at doing photography or maybe are thinking about going or maybe they've just graduated um so they're people who are like really finding their way and like really want help in some way um and we do sessions with them the the free at the moment um are all women that was just a coincidence you don't have to be mm. um and it's kind of sharing skills and knowledge with people and then I also do workshops 
um with schools which is about like visual literacy and kind of looking in new ways because again there's a lot of schools kind of like around this area that don't do photography or have equipment or so it's it's very basically kind of doing things like that and I would say I'm never going to say never to the socials but I think especially after COVID I kind of took a break um, Mm. and I think as long as they're doing the things that I want them to do in terms of like bringing people together but as long as they're accessible for working class people because I think very easily photography events can become not accessible for working class people and um without funding and stuff it's quite hard to address that maybe Mm, great is there a website for it can people go and find it there's only an instagram at the moment i do have a website but i haven't updated it so it's just out of action okay Um, okay so all right so they can find it on instagram yeah lens think it's called if they just put that in they might be interested yeah i was just thinking about in terms of um you know, kind of commission work and and earning a living and stuff, they're kind of natural bias towards, you know, the kind of gravitational pull of London and the South. In terms of you getting jobs and stuff, is it it, uh, disadvantaged to be up north where you are? I don't, the, the true answer is I'm not sure. I think that it's harder at first because, for example, when I was in my final year, like, I'd said that I wasn't staying in London and I couldn't stay in London because without like a part-time job and without a grant, because I still had, you know, like well, it was like a loan to go to uni and stuff, and mm-hmm. but I wouldn't have been able to afford. And I did look at afterwards kind of there was, I remember there was a picture editor job and it paid like £19,000 a year, but I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to be a photographer and I was like, but would I be able to like live in London? And like, that seems like a lot, but it's probably not a lot in like working out what you could do and stuff. And I think like part of it was, I found it really, I think it's really difficult to not have money and be in London. I think London is an amazing place to be, but if you don't have money, it's a really shocking place to be. And it's really brutal. Um, And I think I'd found that really difficult Um, and kind of went home to kind of figure things out and work out where and what I was going to do. Um, And I think that there's a lot of things like you can't just show up for portfolio reviews where you might meet someone and it's, it's getting people to be able to see your work. And a lot of the time, you know, if you've just graduated, someone has to trust you to work with you. So you, they have to see that you're capable of doing that job. Um, And sometimes they might want to meet you. And that might be really important to them. I think Mm. like now you can ask for a Zoom and stuff. So it is maybe a bit different. But I do think there's that, there is that key thing of being in the room and being able to meet people. Um, And I do think that that is still really important, which makes it harder. Mm. But what I have noticed, and I don't know whether it's because if you slowly carry on making work, people will realise where you are and ask you to do assignments based on your region exactly yeah 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 so it can it can work out actually all right because you are their girl in up north and and you can cover that patch as it were and that's how i guess that's how it always used to work but i suppose there might be just fewer uh opportunities in terms of the just the sheer number of jobs that come up where you know in that area i suppose Mm. well that'll be an interesting one to sort of i guess see how things pan out in the future because I mean obviously you know you've got to earn a living but you're more I think preoccupied with pursuing personal projects rather than sort of um, um, going out and uh, doing commissioned work I mean I guess it's the the balance as usual it is and, and I think you know you I think what's nice about doing it in like a slower way as well is that the commissions you work all of a, like get all of a sudden becomes about class and it becomes so it's actually really interesting and I think that when that happens it's almost just like another part of your practice and yeah obviously there are things of a commission that make it very different to your personal work but I think it is interesting when it can happen like that and I mean not every commission is like that yeah, I can't no. say that that is the case but I think it is about balance um, and if you if and I would definitely like I think sometimes I could be quite like I wouldn't apply for stuff necessarily a few years ago because I'd think well what's the point I'm not going to get that but I don't think I think if you do apply and you end up getting something that could be what helps you to make the work you want to work because like if I hadn't have got 
the jailed photos, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't have been able to make this work in the way I have, mm. or I'd have had to do it over lots of years. Mm. Do they give you money, the Jerwood? What is there a kind of cash prize, as it were? Yeah, so you get ten thousand pounds, like over a, a year of making. Yeah, um, so it's like split. Um, and then when the work's shown, you get money to help with the exhibition, um, and then you get uh, four four mentors. Okay, that sounds good. The other thing I I have to ask you about because something you kind of mentioned quite casually, almost in passing, is that you had a, a diagnosis of autism in adulthood. When did you get diagnosed? So that was just a a bit before COVID um times and so like I do still feel like I'm kind of working it out um Mm. and like understanding it but I think a lot of the things about my work like maybe not being super verbal when I was younger and not being able to communicate what was going on in my head actually lends itself to photography in a way because it gives and I don't know whether this is just for me I can't speak for anyone else but it gives you this way of being able to communicate the things that you maybe find hard to communicate because you think slightly differently. Um, and again, there's a lot that I'm still learning about myself because like I wasn't like super, I wasn't like great at maths and like I wasn't like really like a kind of hyperactive child. Or So I think some of the things where someone might think that that, that child is neurodivergent or like we need to look at having a test or we need to just didn't happen back mm. like yeah it didn't happen like as someone who was like the four five six like in the 90s that you wouldn't have necessarily been diagnosed mm. had you ever had any suspicion though over the years that you you might be on the spectrum well I didn't know but then when I told my mom she was like oh yeah I always thought you might be <laughs> so that was quite interesting yeah yeah classic but what led up to this diagnosis then was there some specific kind of process or you know was it it's some kind of weird um, accident in a way um so if people want to be diagnosed you can ask for a diagnosis from your doctor so if you have suspicions or if you have worries or if you're just interested like in general people can ask and just be quite firm about it I guess um mm. for me I had gone through a mental health crisis. Um, So when you go through a mental health crisis, you spend uh, time with psychologists, psychiatrists, and uh, people who, like, help you do CBT and things. And it was brought up within that process. Right, right. Okay, I see. And so, like, when you hear people talk about having had a, a diagnosis in adulthood, they often say that it was some kind of a relief or that they felt suddenly, you know, things suddenly fell into place and there was almost, you know, a, a very positive element to getting that diagnosis. What was your experience of that? I think I found it quite hard because some of the things that I'd really tried to kind of work on, like I think there was a relief, but then I was also like confused and found it hard because and I don't know if it was because the timing of the diagnosis so then I didn't have like a lot of support and things but Mm. I think it's it can be quite hard because some of the things that you try and work on like maybe being quite quiet or like feeling like oh I'm really awkward and like then you're like is that just part of me and then you have to kind of come to terms with all these different and start understanding and understanding how to talk about when you're making work and asking for help and like asking for things like as an artist or a photographer, if you're making personal work or commissions, there's something called an access document that you can make which shares disability needs. Um, and I think if, if people are interested in someone's journey who talks about it really openly, there's an artist called Becky Beasley. Um, and she has, I think, an Instagram account. Um, I can't remember that. I'll send you the uh, tag mm. for it. Um, but I think is is really good because she, I think she talked about it before she was diagnosed and then kind of... Um, talks about it really well um so I think I would recommend that but yeah Mm. I think I think for me it was confusing for a while and then there's also stuff that you can put in place that will help you so then it was also really helpful Mm. do you have sort of strategies for yourself for sort of coping with you know I guess you know whatever the main challenges are for you well then tell me what those are and there's the two questions in there but yeah what what are the main challenges for you Joe? and 
and you know what are the strategies that you've sort of developed perhaps you've developed them you know over the years before you even knew that you were on the spectrum I think there's stuff that you do develop as protective things that you have to get by um and I think I've always found things like private views, really busy events, difficult, and I still do. Mm. And I yeah, just... but I, but I, I, fucking, <laughs> I find those difficult because I'm an introvert, but I don't think I'm on the spectrum. But yeah, sorry, carry on. But I think it's, yeah, like learning, like, do you have to go to all those things you find difficult? Mm. Or like, if you have to walk, like, do you spend an hour? Like, do you need to rest afterwards? Um do you need to have a day working at home the next day to kind of recover from that and mm. factor in things like that and then being really honest with yourself? Um, and then there's there's really kind of practical things. Like before I knew I would always have like a panic attack on a train and I just thought that was me. And, for, you know, like that could be just me as well. There's, there's parts of these things yeah, that it where, will... Yeah, exactly. Where's the line between just normal human traits and then you know autistic traits it's a very blurred kind of division there if you're you've got a quite a mild kind of version of autistic spectrum disorder as far as I can tell I mean you I don't know what you talk about um you know expressing yourself and language but I mean to me you're incredibly articulate and you know I've done a lot of these so I'm in a reasonable position to make that judgment I think and uh yeah you come across <gasps> Your dog is also uh, putting his two pennies in, you see. He's agreeing with me, Joe. But, I mean, are there any ways in which uh, it's uh, some kind of an advantage in terms of your practice? I I have thought about this and I'm not, I can't say I'm 100% sure. So I think that, I mean, there's some things like people have always said that they find themselves really at ease with me or that I understand. Like, so they might be kind of talking about things that we're going to make a portrait about and they've always said it's like you understand it and I but again like I can't say if that's autism or not um Mm. and you know I've I've, I've had conversations with um some of my friends are designers and they were recently diagnosed with ADHD and they're and they were kind of going through the same thing like is your strengths who you are or is it and I I can't say and I'm still figuring out these things um but there's a really there's another great book called disability visibility and I think you know just reading up and kind of like learning about what works for you and what doesn't um is really helpful as well and have you found people when you tell them do they react weirdly sometimes or react with discomfort I think there's there's things that are quite like I think there's a lot of misunderstandings, but like also because there's not a lot of education. Mm. Um, And I think what like my personal thing is like, say if something might be difficult, I'll just mention it, that I might find something difficult. Because I think that that's the easiest way of talking about it. And then how much you go into it, you can say, oh, I don't want to go into it anymore. You can set the kind of boundary for that. Um, or just saying to someone, um, is it okay if I send my access document over? And, you know, just being clear about like that if you have a meeting in a really, really busy room, it might be really difficult and you might not be able to understand what someone's saying. Mm. Um, and I think it's quite important to say something like that because if you get that wrong and you're working on a commission, then that's not great. So, like, I think that they would prefer you to say that. Yeah, absolutely. But again, you know, I think you have to have a certain amount of self-confidence in order to do that comfortably and you know we've talked a lot about you know the kind of middle class confidence and your working classness but you you clearly have that it seems to me so yeah I mean that's just you know all power to you now look I, neither um Daughters of the Soil or um Live the Land are sort of easily visible um they're not on your site when, when can we see these projects tell me about the sort of you know the schedule of of things as far as those go so if you're based in the northeast, um, in Newcastle at Vane Gallery on August the 11th, you can come see Darts of the Soil in person, which is the same exhibition in, that was in Berwick, but it's a slightly different um, way of presenting the work um, and for a slightly different audience. But it will also be on my website by the end of August. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I, I like people to see the exhibition first and then to see 
it online, but mm. it does make it harder for people who aren't. Of course, yeah, yeah. You've only got a small percentage of people who are actually going to be able to get there physically. And what about Lie of the Land? Um, so the Lie of the Land will be at the Gerwood Space in London from the 24th of September up until December. Um, and there'll be some kind of events to go alongside that as well. And it'll be with Heather's work, who is the other award winner, mm. and which is really interesting as well. All right, well, great. Well, look, I'm, I'm, we're going to look forward to seeing those uh, forthcoming projects. Thank you so much for chatting, Joe. Thank you for having me, Ben. Bye. Mm-hmm.